We are now in the beginning of what the United Nations has declared to be the decade on ecosystem restoration. And this episode of the Rewilding Earth podcast is sponsored by Biohabitats, a company dedicated to protecting and restoring ecosystems. Biohabitats would like you to enjoy a virtual moment with the black kite. While we talk today about the role of natural fire versus humans' relationship to fire, the black kite reminds us just how natural fire is in our world. There is now evidence that black kites may actually start fires by carrying and dropping burning twigs away from the original fire. They are said to do this to then hunt escaping prey, allowing them to feed with little competition from rival predators. And well, that's just cool. Listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Stephen Pine is a historian, urban farmer, and emeritus professor at Arizona State University. He spent 15 seasons on a fire crew at the North Rim of the Grand Canyon National Park and another three writing fire plans for the National Park Service. He's written big screen fire histories of America, Australia, Canada, Europe, including Russia, along with textbooks, popular works, and a memoir of his seasons with the North Rim Longshots. Today I'm talking with Stephen about his book, The Pyrocene, how we created an age of fire and what happens next. We start at the beginning of fire on earth and explore human controlled fire and its effects on wildlands, as well as solutions to the fire age, the Pyrocene, we find ourselves in. The fact is we live on a fire planet, a uniquely fire planet, the only one we know of. And we are a uniquely fire creature. We now have a species monopoly over fire. Fire is what we do. It's our ecological signature. So for someone interested in earth, environment, and and people, fire is a pretty good index of who we are. I picked up the torch uh, a long long time ago. I I spent 15 seasons uh, on a fire crew at the North Rim of Grand Canyon and got interested in fire and then eventually uh, realized I should be writing about that. that. That was a topic that wasn't really being treated in the way I was taught to think about history and culture and sort of human human behavior on the planet. And the Pyrocene brings together a lot of stuff I've been writing about for a long time and uh, tries to crystallize it into a, a kind of metaphor, if you will. Uh, in many ways, it's my answer to those people who say uh, the future is so dire and strange that that we have no way to connect it to the past we we have no narrative and we have no analog there's nothing we've had in our experience that will prepare us for the kind of strange happenings that are coming and my sense is we have a great narrative it's the unbroken story of humanity and fire uh, a, a kind of mutual assistance pact we made long ago and i think we have a, an apt analogy we're creating the fire equivalent of an ice age I mean, you made the case perfectly. Oh. It's We're completely intertwined with all of this. And to be able to say that we're in a fire age, that uh, this is a pyrocene, uh, the, the age of fire, 
is is you back it up. And maybe you could describe that a little bit in terms sure. of starting with the types of fire and um, yeah. those kind of mind benders that you put in there that that uh, show us just how deep this fire thing goes on this planet. Sure. Well, uh, I the fire community likes to to deal with triangles, fire triangles. So this is mine, and I, I think I can justify it. So we have three kinds of fires. Think about how fire uh, exists on the planet now. And the, the first fire is the is nature's fire. And it's been around as long as plants have colonized continents. So we had an oxygenated atmosphere uh, created by life in the oceans. Life, when it begins colonizing the continents, provides fuel. And then lightning was a primary source of ignition. So we have fossil charcoal dating back 420 million years. So fire is not something alien uh, to to life on Earth. In many ways, it's it's a property of of life on Earth. Life created the oxygen. Life created uh, the fuels. And when the hominins appear, maybe earlier, someone came and went, but certainly uh, over the course of the Pleistocene, life became a primary source of ignition as well. So what happens is that uh, a creature, a, a genus, the hominids appear who have the ability to start and use fire. And um, this is really a, a major shift in the history of fire on the planet. What did I think of a second fire or anthropogenic fire? What did this mean that this creature uh, could manipulate fire? Well, it looks like we got small guts and big heads because we learned to cook food. And then we went to the top of the food chain because we learned to cook landscapes. And now we've become a planetary force because we've begun to cook the planet. So we have always used fire. Uh, we used it as an assistance uh, for tools, uh, but mostly for cooking. And there's a lot of evidence that says cooking provided a lot of uh, nutritional and caloric impact. It, it, it was a lever. Uh, that allowed us to make a leap and become something different. The real shift is when we begin to realize we don't have to rely on nature to start the fires or to provide cooked food here and there. We can do it ourselves. So imagine uh, a bison, for example, which uh, which will feed preferentially on freshly burned stuff. I mean, that's clear. Two years unburned, you won't see any animals, and they might as well be eating cardboard. But what if the bison could start the fires that provide its food stuff. Well, that's in a sense what happened with humans. So we did that. Uh, there are limits. The ability to start fires uh, depends. You can control time and place, but the ability to spread, which is the real power of fire to propagate, uh, depends on the environment. You have to have the right wetting and drying, the right kind of stuff to burn, the right winds and so forth. Uh, we began changing that when we began modifying the fuels. And for me, this is what agriculture means. We began slashing, drying, we drain uh, wetlands. All of this changes the seasonality and the geography of fire. With, I think, planetary consequences, we're just beginning to appreciate that we have been modifying the planet and indeed the climate for a long time. But I think the real uh, takeoff point 
comes with the with the end of the last glaciation, the onset of the Holocene, because we have a fire-wielding creature, very mobile, who is encountering a fire-receptive world, and the two begin to interact in in a kind of positive feedback way. So that still has limits. You know, there's only so much you can cut and dry and burn, and without without the ecosystem collapsing. Uh, and it does collapse if you overdo it. You have to abandon it and go on. So there are there are built-in checks and balances because we're dealing with the living world, living landscapes. They provide the fuel. And then we began burning what I think of as lithic landscapes. That is, once living, now fossilized into the form of coal, oil, natural gas, and so forth, our fossil fuels. And when we began doing that, our firepower increases enormously. We put the whole process on afterburners. But it also allows us to exceed all the old checks and balances. You know, we used to have to burn by seasons. You had to burn by place. Now you can burn day and night, winter and summer, through wet or dry. It doesn't matter. We can burn constantly. So the old quest for fire had always been about finding more stuff to burn, ways to burn it, and uses for. Now, the, there's plenty to burn. There's, we keep discovering more all the time. The problem is that there's no place to put all the effluent, all the byproducts. Even the planet is not enough. The oceans are being disturbed by it uh, and acidified. The, uh, the atmosphere is changing. The climate is changing. In fact, uh, our power now, the great acceleration also applies to fire. Our, our, our power now is such that, for me, climate history is now a sub-narrative of fire history. Why is it that megafires are a pathology of the developed world? I mean, we've got mm. the most machinery. We've got uh, the most intensive land capacity to, to change the land and alter it. Uh, we have the most science. We have all this fancy computer graphics. We've got tools. Why is it that we're having? It's These are signs of a fossil fuel civilization because it changed not only climate, it changed how we live on the land. We have found surrogates by looking to fossil fuels for all of the living landscapes and the way we interacted before. So in some of it, it's very obvious. Our domestic settings and factories, uh, office parks, and so forth, Working fires are completely gone. We get it from electricity or uh, or uh, natural gas, whatever. And some of this is is all to the good. I mean, I'm happy that fires are not running through our cities anymore. I'm happy that I don't live in a house that fills with smoke. But then we've kept applying this to other landscapes. The whole green revolution is basically a conversion to fossil fuels as a substitute for the things that fire would provide in agriculture previously. And one of the things that got lost is fallowing. Fallow was the way you got field burning before, but the fallow was where most of the biodiversity was and provided uh, kind of patchy landscapes that was very um, useful for, for living things in general. And then we've decided we'd continue this process and we would project that same trend out into our wildlands or public spaces. And that's where things really come unhinged because we decided we could meet nature's fire with a counterforce by all these machines. And for a while it works. 
and then it doesn't because the landscape changes places that are have adapted to fire for very long periods of time even over evolutionary time become unhinged and we they they rearrange and build up combustibles to the point where we have explosive fires where we didn't before fires that are outside the historical range of of these of these habitats and of course we change the climate which means that in most places we're getting uh, we're amplifying the conditions that support large fire but you know the tendency up until very recently has been well if fire is getting fires are getting larger we need a bigger counterforce but that's not working even cal fire which has more firepower firefighting power than you know california in general than any place else on earth is helpless before these really large fires but imagine if take away all of our air tankers and helicopters our our engines and water tenders and bulldozers and chainsaws and pumps and the roads and vehicles to carry crews in and around could we pretend to fight fire of course not this is not a city where we where what burns depends on what we build this is what nature is providing and we how we interact with it we could not have pretended to do that. We would have had to do what humans have always done, which is to manipulate that landscape to get fires that we that we can accept and live with, and to substitute our fires, in effect, tame fires uh, for wildfires. And when I say tame, it's not always uh, like burning a you know a fallow field or burning the stubble after you've harvested a crop you can't control all the weather and the winds and all the quirks and nooks this is like uh it, it's not like having a tame sheepdog it's more like taming a grizzly bear or a tiger to do tricks <laughs> and there's always a chance that it can go feral but if you do it over very long periods of time then it all comes into a rough accommodation and it works those places that are most developed and development essentially means converting to a fossil fuel society are the ones that have the worst fire problems. One of your reviewers said something about, we've done all of these things that you've talked about, tamed and suppressed fire for much of the industrial age, and now fire is rewilding itself. What did yeah. what did she mean by that? What do you mean by that? Well, that's a great it, that's a that's a great term. I think it's that we thought we had uh, a leash on fire. And that our our ability to start fires in our machines basically was enough that we could uh, keep fire under our control. And fire has slipped that leash. It has, in a sense, uh, rewilded. Uh, another way that to think about that, avoiding the wilding issue, is that these are feral fires. These are places that had abundant fire for very long periods of time. Uh, even under human settlement, but these fires were more or less domesticated. And if uh, people uh, lost control uh, in one way or another, say there a war or famine, plague, something disrupted the human social order so that they could no longer maintain the land and the fires appropriately, then it goes feral. You can see how this happens but then it's really dumb that nobody anticipated it, that we are very effective at squashing the small fires, the nuisance fires, 
were doing, we were very effective at introducing our own fires, controlled, prescribed, whatever you, you want to imagine them. But now we declared all fires uh, as a problem, uh, and we tried to eliminate them. And we are succeeding with all the fires that were probably doing some good, all the small fires, some of the intermediate fires, but what we can't control are the ones that really matter. That is the really large fires, high intensity fires, some of which are part of the natural scene, many of which no longer are. So we've created a situation where the only, where we've created an environment where the likely fires are going to be the ones we don't want and can't control anymore. And now it's so far under out of our control that it's very hard to imagine how to put things back in. Well, I'm sure, though, that you have done some imagining. And of course, <laughs> you know that I'm going to ask you that question. I mean, well, it's, yeah, it's tough. I don't see any I don't see any clean way out of this situation because, I mean, politicians are going to have to say, trust me, it's going to be bad for a while, but we'll we'll appreciate it a generation from now. I mean, that is not a campaign uh, no. A winning campaign slogan. The American fire community really has its its origins. Our, our wildland fire uh, system had a kind of uh, creation story in the Great Fires of 1910. And mm. we spent 50 years afterwards with the Forest Service as pretty much a hegemon uh, trying to take all fire out of landscapes. And then in the 60s and 70s, policies changed. We realized this was a mistake. And we've spent roughly 50 years trying to put good fires back in. So distinguishing, trying to distinguish between bad and good fires. Uh, what are, what's the distinction? Bad fires are fires that kill people, burn towns, trash, uh, valued uh, ecosystems. Good fires do the reverse. They help make healthier, more resilient habitats and so forth. One, we have a serious problem with communities being threatened by wildfires. And there's a lot of research on this. And it's pretty clear that the way to protect those communities is to focus primarily on the structures themselves. What ignites the fires are not tsunamis of flame roaring out of the countryside, but blizzards of embers, kind of a, a, a snowstorm of, of sparks, if you will, uh, that swarm across and find points of vulnerability. And we have for a long time, or had for a long time, not really experienced urban fires. We thought that was a problem solved. So we built or reoccupied a lot of urban communities. In ways, we've been recolonizing the rural landscape, but with an urban outmigration, really creating exurbs. And so we're not doing things in the landscape as people in the past did that would have helped protect them from these kinds of fires. But these sparks are what begin the process, and then they can go ignite enough houses to overwhelm the initial response, and then uh, it just goes as an urban fire. And, you know, this is like, for me, this is like watching polio come back. You know, we fixed this problem, or smallpox. Well, we thought it had gone away. We don't need to vaccinate anymore. We don't need to practice sort of pyrrhic hygiene anymore because urban fires are not a problem. Well, they're back, folks. And we need to reinstate the kinds of things we have done in the past. And in many ways, what is now known as the wildland urban fire or wildland urban interface fire, it's a really stupid, geeky term, but we're stuck with it, got misdefined. It got defined by the wildland fire community 
which saw the problem as one of wildland fire and its management complicated by houses. It should We should have picked up the other end of the stick and say, you know, these are really urban enclaves with peculiar landscaping. If you define it as an urban fire problem, it's pretty clear what you have to do. You have to do what was necessary to take fire out of our cities. And they used to burn as often as the surrounding countryside. We stopped that. That's how to reinstate. That's how to reconcile this problem. And I think there may be an argument for a kind of a green belt around, and it doesn't have to be paved or nuked. It can be recreational space. It could be something that's managed, which helps to provide a little fuel break. It won't stop fires, but it will change the character to the point where we can manage them. The second thing is to get those landscapes in shape. You know, we could do the, the, the housing, the community thing if we wanted to. We could do this in five to 10 years. We've identified the points of vulnerability. We know the most vulnerable communities. You just have to buckle down and do it. And a lot of the things that are causing problems, like power lines, stuff we need to do anyway. So we don't need a trillion-dollar program for fire. We need fire as a part of a lot of other infrastructure rehabilitation and reconsidering of land use that we need to do anyway. Okay, then the second part is the countryside, the, the wildlands, the public lands. If we can pro provide protection for the communities, it will give us some space to deal with uh, the backcountry. And there are lots of things that can be done. Some fires can be introduced in the Southeast. Prescribed fire is a well-established technique and a very successful one. Uh, in the West, it has not been able to operate at scale or in complex environments. And what the agencies are doing is to manage wildfire. So we're back to our sort of uh, tamed grizzly bear in a sense. And they're working with wildfires. They're putting their resources to protect our high-value assets, our communities. Uh, it may be dealing with smoke. It may be sequoia groves uh, or habitats, preserves established for endangered species. Putting your resources there to protect those municipal watersheds, et cetera, and then um, pulling back to natural barriers and then burning out. And this could be over a considerable area. Uh, a lot fewer people, a lot less risk to firefighters. Um, if you do the burnouts well, you should think of them as a kind of prescribed fire done under urgent conditions. We're not just nuking these areas uh, or napalming them and just producing a deep black line. The idea is to use that fire to do a variety of things as well as secure your fire line and provide protection against the fire escaping. And this also has a, an advantage. This is not monitoring. It's not watching. This is actively engaging, but of a different way than we think of fire fighting on an urban model. And that also puts some boundaries on where the fire is going to go, but also smoke. We can't have smoke lingering in communities for three months at a time. Uh, and this puts some, some borders on it. So we need to begin getting fire in, and it's going to be a sloppy, messy process. We don't control all of that environment. We can do a lot, but there are going to be escapes. You know, we have escapes when we have all-out suppression, Cal Fire around cities, uh, LA County. 
they lose two to three percent of fires anyway. It's not possible to get much beyond that unless you control the entire landscape, which is what a city is. We lose probably half that from prescribed fires. We will have to accept a certain amount of that. And once we get the system into rude shape, then we will be able to deal with these slopovers or escapes. They will be much easier to contain. The third thing is to get control of third fire, which is to uh, cycle off uh, fossil fuel combustion as a source of primary power as soon as possible. And so what do we need? To, which of these three do we need to do first? We need to do them all at the same time. They have different timetables. We can protect communities, as I say, within a handful of years if we choose. Uh, landscapes probably take a handful of decades. Uh, climate change, probably going to take a couple centuries. Uh, and thereafter, we may be in the permanent business of managing climate, uh, not just disrupting it. But that's a, that's a much longer range view. If we just mitigate but don't do climate change, eventually our mitigation will be overwhelmed. On the other hand, if all we focus on is climate change and let wildfires run amok, particularly really damaging fires, we're going to have a lot less to build into a recovery. We need to do them all. And if people don't feel safe in their communities, uh, they're not going to be very tolerant of anything else you do. So that is really a high prior, legitimately a high priority concern. Fires we talk about are the ones that are closest to town. But what's really amazing, if anybody looks at those maps of all the active fires in their area, somewhere in the West, in California or New Mexico, when the really big ones were going through just recently, there are a lot of fires that nobody's talking about, like yeah. a lot. And basically that fallacy of uh, we have this fire crew, we know how to handle it with all our machines and all this stuff. That's just the fraction of it that everyone seems concerned with. But all those other fires in the backcountry, are those at least doing what they're supposed to do? Are they at least a little closer to natural than the ones that we're fighting close to home, where we've also been allowing all of the buildup to happen because we've been suppressing the small fires? Uh, you're more right than wrong. Uh, and studies show that uh, as far as communities, the fires that threaten communities start within a mile or two of the community. It's very rare to have fires start in the remote backcountry and then make their way in. It happens, but not very, but not very often. That gets plenty of news. So again, it's a case of looking close to home, building that, building protective in ways that are smart. Again, we don't have to trash everything to protect ourselves. We can do this in bio-friendly and even aesthetically pleasing ways. But the fires in the backcountry, particularly in the West, lots of it, I think in the Southwest, I think the Northern Rockies, some, I suspect, some of the fires we saw in Northwest, uh, the Blue Mountains in Oregon this summer, and elsewhere, certainly in Alaska, they're managing these fires to, to keep them within a large box, if you will, and to protect the areas that are most threatened. Otherwise, using burnout and how much how much of that is good fire, I think a significant fraction. Uh, I saw an example of this a few years ago, the uh, San Carlos Apaches Reservation east of Phoenix. Nobody knows where they are. And the wind blows smoke away from the city. So th they've got some room to maneuver. Uh, but they had an area running through the middle of uh, the res 
uh, that they had been trying to burn for about 10 years. It was a pine step land and then uh, some chaparral area uh, around the rims and so forth. And they had been trying to get all the pieces lined up, the funding, uh, the studies, the equipment, the ability to call on uh, reinforcements if necessary, all these kinds of ever lengthening checklists, and they couldn't do it. Then they had two lightning strikes there, and they managed those fires as a kind of confined, contained, managed wildfire thing, and they got 84,000 acres of it exactly where they wanted. Hmm. And they felt that maybe about 10% of that was more severe than they wanted. They have some of the, it damaged some of their timber that they have a tribal uh, mill, and they lost some of that, but they were willing to trade it off. And probably another 10% didn't burn at all. Fires are, are patchy over large areas. And the rest of it was within the range that a prescribed fire would have been acceptable. So if they can get 80, 75% of that burned area in the right kind of fire, that to their mind was a very suitable trade-off. And I emphasize that they were actively managing. They were pushing and pulling these fires. They were stopping mm -hmm. them where they didn't want them to go. And they were lighting them where they wanted to go, sort of pushing and pulling and uh, working around, sort of loose herding this fire, trying to work with the fire. So fire a lot we, I'm sorry, there's a lot we can do with this. We A lot more research, but we've got to disentangle in people's minds and the political scene, communities from the larger landscape. If you were an advisor at the right place in the right time, as we were hoovering up natural areas for development, for resources, mining, logging, agriculture, you might have said, hey, you guys might want to slow down and reserve more of this because fire is a natural thing. And we need these. Some of these places don't even thrive fully unless they do burn. And most places don't. And if you don't want to lose the only one you've got, you might want to save two, three or four, because a lot of the yeah. fires are now threatening places where the only leopard frog in the world is left. And and it's like, well, did did that just says we took too much? We didn't build a a, a modern world that's taking any account for fire. Yeah. I mean, we've taken out, what, 12 to 19 percent of mature sequoias. In the world, I mean, this is this is just mind-boggling. This, this is how could this happen? Yeah, you're exactly right. But you know, people a century ago, that's what they thought they were doing. They wanted to encourage all this young forest growing up because that was the forest of the future, and they thought that they were smart enough and strong enough to keep fire out, and this was their contribution. Well, you wonder how did they get fire so wrong? Well, they thought. We really didn't have a science of landscape fire until a few decades ago. Uh, we didn't even have a journal till about 20 years ago. Mm. A society formed about 25 years ago for uh, fire ecology. We really didn't have a science. Foresters hated fire because they came out of Central Europe, which has no natural basis for fire, no wet-dry cycles, no dry lightning. They just saw it as a social problem, people's bad behavior. And they thought as something that had to be eliminated before you could really manage the land. Well, they didn't have a science of this. They, they just had a series of presumptions and prejudices that were common to that guild. And they assumed that they were speaking as scientists, and they weren't. And so part of the tragedy is that we lost all of the traditional knowledge from people who had lived for hundreds or thousands of years in places, lived with fire and used fire. That was all suppressed as much as the fires were. And now we're having to recover it. 
What do you see going forward? It, it, you've you've drawn a clear yeah. picture that we're kind of getting a late start here because of our lack of understanding really was just holding us back. How do you feel about the, the pyro scene? How does this go forth? Are we making progress? There's certainly progress possible if we choose. We can protect communities, as I say. This was a technical problem. It's about building materials, fire codes, zones, and the infrastructure for urban firefighting. Thinking about these as urban fires, not wildland fires that have cities in the way. These are really cities that have uh, really strange landscaping that they haven't attended to as as urbans. That are these are technical issues. They're social political issues, but they have technical solutions to keep these places from burning. We also have technical solutions for uh, eliminating fossil fuel combustion as a primary source of power. Again, there are social, cultural, political issues, but there is a technical fix possible. The the wildlands are sort of great public countryside, don't have, to my mind, technical solutions in the same way. This is going to be a process of learning or relearning what humans have not, had known for all of our existence as a species and, and apparently forgotten about as we converted uh, to modern societies. And that's going to be sloppy and messy and unnecessary. It's going to happen whether whether or not we do anything. As we ratchet down our burning of fossil fuels, we will be ratcheting up our burning of living landscapes. We have a huge fire deficit in most of these landscapes. We will have more fire. I look at the amount of acres burned this year. Well, we had 10, 12 million acres, you know, the worst in so many decades. I see, I see a fire deficit. We should have burned three or four times that much under prescribed conditions. We're not getting enough fire. We're having wildfire. The worst possible kinds of fires do that burning for us with results that may not be what we want. We need a lot more fire. So we need to be cautious in thinking about taming climate change, getting it back to something. We still have a problem with land use and fire. And we need, we will be active fire agents there uh, in perpetuity. I would say, you know, at the end, I mean, uh, as I look at over the long spectrum, we, good fire made us and bad fire may unmake us. Stephen, this has been enlightening at risk <laughs> of making a pun, uh, but it really, really has. And I so appreciate you coming on and 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 giving us your take on this. Again, I bet you a lot of people listening had the same reaction and uh, and certainly will once they read your book, if they haven't yet. Um, it just feels like a whole different way of looking at this than most of us have been thinking of it, even people so, so-called in the business. Hey, listen, it's been a pleasure. Uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.